So after answering their questions about marriage, Paul turns to another controversial subject. Can Christians eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols? The focus of this morning's message will be on how a Christian can appropriately exercise their freedoms. And as we'll see, when it comes to questionable areas of the Christian life, there must be a balance of knowledge and love. Otherwise, truth without love will lead to brutality, and love without truth will lead to hypocrisy. You see, knowledge is power, and it must be used in love. But love must always be controlled by your knowledge. So let's open up this morning uh, with a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, creator of this universe, creator of heaven and earth, we are so humbled and so thankful that we can come to you right now and hear from you. May we understand what you want to tell us, clear our minds and hearts from whatever issues are going on at home, at work, with families. May we just concentrate on what you have to say right now. Fill this room with your spirit, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. First Corinthians chapter 8. Now, about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not know he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Paul here begins to address the second issue raised by the Christians at Corinth. Should Christians eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols? Now, within the city of Corinth, there were numerous temples dedicated to various idols where animals would be sacrificed. A portion of the meat would be consumed at the altar another portion would be given to the priest and the remainder of the sacrifice would be sold in the markets called uh, shambles at reduced, at reduced rates. It was concerning this, the meat sold in shambles that, the, that uh, the Corinthians questioned Paul. But before Paul directly answers the question, he first wants them to understand the principles, the principles of knowledge and love. So he begins by using another slogan that may have been very familiar to them. We all have knowledge as a starting point. From there he, has, he adds, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The knowledge he's speaking of here is the gnosis knowledge that he, already, he had already spoken of in chapter 1, verse 5, and refers to a prideful religious kind of knowledge. This is someone, again, who has become so knowledgeable with what Scripture 
says about a subject or issue that they view themselves better than others. And one of the products of this kind of attitude, of this kind of knowledge, is legalism. So while knowledge puffs up the self, an attitude of love builds up. You see, when true knowledge is tethered to love, it doesn't lead to arrogance, but to the building up of others. The difference between puffs up and build up is striking. It's the difference between a bubble and a building. Some Christians grow and others just swell. When you grow as a Christian and become more knowledgeable with what the Bible says, it's important that you ensure that you're also growing in love. You see, certain things tend to happen when love is neglected and too much of an emphasis is placed on knowledge. And as I mentioned, one of these things that will happen is that you will become legalistic. Another thing that may occur is that you will be unapproachable. No one will be able to approach you because they're just scared that you're going to condemn them or you're going to, you know, they're not going to feel comfortable coming up to you and seeking advice for something that they may have done wrong or they're not sure if it's wrong or not. And another thing that may happen is you will have a hard time just really experiencing the joy of the Lord. Because you're just always looking, as a legalistic person, you're just always looking to see who's doing something wrong. You're just, that joy in you is, isn't there. You know, when the, someone has victory and someone has something good happening to them, you know, you're not even paying attention to that. You, all you're focusing on is what someone is doing wrong. You won't, again, you'll have a hard time experiencing the joy of the Lord. However, when knowledge is combined with love, here's what will likely happen. You will have grace for others. The same grace that God extended to you for all your sins, for all your wrongs, all the horrible things that you've done in, in your past, you'll be able to extend it to others. So that no matter what kind of a person approaches you or comes up to you or, or you or you meet, you'll be able to love them, genuinely love them. You will also be more accepting of people despite their flaws. You know, I'm not going to go out there, it would be wrong of me to go out there and just start condemning people that I don't know maybe possibly unbelievers just because they have a different lifestyle than me or because they um, you know look differently act differently have a different political party than me and even for believers you'll be able to be more accepting hey man that hey brother i just saw you fall something's going on and let me pray with you let me what's going on let's talk and maybe i can help you bring you back to the Lord where he wants you to be. And lastly, when knowledge is combined with love, you will have the joy of the Lord and be able to share it with others. 
He then continues by saying, If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. What Paul means here is someone with a know-it-all attitude is only evidence of their ignorance because someone who really knows truth becomes aware of how much they don't know. A Christian is always growing and is always learning and they will continue to grow and learn for the rest of their lives until they're home with the Lord. You know, I admit that there's so much more for me to learn and so much more that I don't know. But the thing is, I don't allow those things. I don't allow my lack of knowledge to do. In fact, one of the reasons I look forward to, to seeing a new day, to seeing um, a brand new day, is because I absolutely believe that God has new things to show me and new things to teach me. And that's what I look forward to. And I, I know that even if I know it's going to be a hard day or there's a lot of challenges ahead, I know that even within those things, God will show me. God will teach me things. I just have to be open to it. I can't let, you know, my attitude, my negative view of life or the situation that's happening mask that or, or keep that away from me. Again, I have to be just open to what he wants to show me. Don't let it discourage you either. Seek him out and ask him for wisdom. It says in Proverbs 2.6, For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Now, as your pastor, it's important to warn you to stay away from anyone claiming to have figured everything out. They're, they're claiming to figure out everything, that they figured out everything there is to know about God. I've heard stories of people, you know, attending churches and those pastors or those Christians, they're saying, you can be God or you, you know, if you just open yourself up and you can be just as knowledgeable as God and like what? Again, there's, those are, you need to stay away from those kind of people. Dangerous, dangerous people. And these are the people that Paul is speaking of here. Proverbs 14, 7 through 8 says, Stay away from, from a foolish person. You will gain no knowledge from his speech. The sensible person's wisdom is to consider his way. But the stupidity of fools deceives them. Furthermore, it's one thing to know doctrine, doctrine and quite something else to know God. You see, it's possible to grow in Bible knowledge and yet not grow in grace or in one's personal relationship with God. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for, for they will be filled Knowledge and love aren't mutually exclusive principles in the Christian faith. Rather, true Christian gnosis or knowledge and agape love 
are inseparable principles that need to be maintained. Again, another passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2 says, If I understand all mysteries and all, and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but don't have love, I'm nothing. And then he closes this opening statement by saying, But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Paul's point here is that it isn't knowledge it isn't knowledge that we are approved by God, but by our love for God that we are known by Him. That is the knowledge that counts more, the most. The fact that Robin and I are married doesn't prove that we love each other. We know we do because of the emotional, spiritual, and physical bond that we share with one another. If this bond didn't exist, then really we'd just be two individuals living in a house or living together with a paper certificate saying that we're just legally obligated to one another. So now that he's explained the important principles of knowledge and love, he's able to move on and explain why it's okay to eat meat that had been dedicated to idols. So let's pick up in verse uh, 4. Verse 4. About eating food sacrificed to idols then. We know that an idol is nothing in the world, and there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from Him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. Verses 4 through 6 provide the basis for the Christian freedom to eat this, sac this sacrificial food. And he does this by explaining three simple facts. Speaking again to mature believers who are beyond the fundamentals, beyond the basics of, of the Christian faith, he breaks it down the, in the following way. Paul first reminds them what an idol is. He says in verse 4, We know that an idol is nothing in the world, and there is, and there is no God but one. Testament law, he reminds them that an idol has no real existence. An idol isn't really anything because there is only one God. Only one God exists. Therefore, the idols in which the meat is dedicated could be consumed because idols are nothing in the world. Now, the stronger Corinthian Christians would have agreed. They would have been like, yeah, that makes sense. We agree with that. We, we, we understand that. And were, they were perhaps using this very logic to support their freedom to eat this meat. Now, this, what he was saying here is, does not mean that going to a temple and eating an idol's food was permissible. While idols don't exist, false religions do and are promoted by demons. 
So to venture into a temple and eat a sacred meal in honor of a non-god would mean they were partnering with demons. So do you get that? They were saying, yeah, we understand that an idol is nothing and that it means anything and there is only one God. So that's why we go to the temple and, and eat this food. But what they weren't getting was that they were partaking in another religion that, again, a separate, different religion that, again, a false religion that was being promoted by demons. So in a sense, they were partnering. They were eating, partnering with demons. Secondly, he reminds them who God is. Paul writes in verse 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from Him, and we exist for Him. There may be so many, uh, there may be many so-called gods in the world, but for the Christian, there is only one God who not only created us, but we were born and are alive for Him. You exist right now. You're alive right now because of Him. He is the reason why you currently have the lungs in your, in your, in your lungs, I'm sorry, the air in your lungs. Why blood is streaming through your veins. It's by His grace alone that you exist and you're alive for Him. This mirrors the words he wrote in Colossians 1.16 where he says, For by him all things were created in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Yes, you were created for him. To worship him, to do his will to accomplish His purposes for your life. That's why He created you. And thirdly, Paul informs them or reminds them about who Jesus Christ is. There may be also so many called lords and these will be false messiahs, prophets, but there is only one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through Him, and we exist through Him. This also mirrors the words John wrote in the beginning of his Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. This is what distinguishes our Lord Jesus Christ from all the other lords, from all the other false, or from all those false messiahs that are out there, all the false prophets that are out there. The fact is, none of these alleged gods or lords had anything to do with creation, with the creation, sustenance, or redemption of the world, as God as the God of Israel 
and the Father of the Lord Jesus did. Because of this, Christian believers have the freedom to eat meat that had been dedicated or sacrificed to idols and not feel condemned about it. Now by this point, Paul hopes that they're on the same page, that they, there's an understanding of what's going on here. That they're on the same page, that meat that had been sacrificed to idols is nothing and means nothing. So he moves on to show them what knowledge looks like when it's combined with love. Pick it up in verse 7. However, not everyone has this knowledge. Some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are not worse off if we don't eat, and we are not better if we do eat. But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, and uh, someone sees you, the one who has knowledge dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food? offered to idols. So the weak person, the brother or sister for whom, for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Now when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. Paul is aware that a mature believer may be more informed about certain topics or issues than someone who is new in the faith. So here he speaks directly to those Christians and urges them to be careful about flaunting their freedoms. Paul starts by informing those who have this knowledge that again, some may not have the same knowledge they have. Younger Christians who are new in the faith couldn't eat idol meat without recalling past religious associations that the meat had for them. For these believers, such meat had inherently religious connotations. Their conscience was thus considered weak, not because it wasn't working properly, but because it was wrongly informed. You see, their conscience was operating on the idea that there was really something to an idol. And so eating that meat would lead to feelings of guilt and defilement. For them, feeling compelled to do that which, was, which did not proceed from faith was considered sinful. So Paul tells these mature Christians in verse 8 that since there is no inherent spiritual advantage in eating the meat or disadvantage in avoiding it, voluntarily abstaining from idle meat shows concern for a fellow believer who is unable to handle it. 
so in verses 9 through 12. He warns mature believers to be careful about using their knowledge and freedoms in ways that will lead others to sin. In verse 9, he says, Be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. He's basically urging Christians at Corinth not to demand their rights in ways that will cause other believers to sin. He then gives them a realistic example to explain what he means. If a weaker believer sees a stronger believer use his knowledge and personal liberty to eat meat in an idol temple, it may encourage him to do the same, even if he believes in his mind and in his heart that it's a sin. Paul points out in verse 12 that to influence the weak brother to go against his conscience and thereby wound their weak conscience is actually a sin against Christ. The Corinthian Christians who abused their liberty might have thought it was a small matter to offend their weak brothers. Well, it's no big deal. They'll get over it. However, they didn't understand that it was an actual offense to Jesus Christ. Paul then closes his section telling mature believers the extent they must be willing to go to keep younger believers from spiritual harm. He says in verse 13, If food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat. What Paul is saying is that when there is good reason to believe that exercising one's freedom will actually lead a fellow Christian to sin, restraint is always right. Paul models this principle by his own examples, by his own example, and states it with an emphasis worthy of Mark 9.42. And there it says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. You see, the actions of a Christian can never be based only on, on, uh, only on what they know to be right for themselves. They also need to consider what's right towards their brothers and sisters in Christ. When it comes to our own freedoms and liberties, we must apply the same principles that Paul was urging the mature believers at Corinth to practice. The best way to do this is to voluntarily abstain from things and places you may, you may say or you may see as a freedom, but maybe a stumbling block for other Christians. For example, you may not see anything wrong with going to see a favorite movie or having dinner with old friends at a, at a restaurant or a, at a bar that, or a restaurant that has a bar. But what if that movie is viewed by a Christian brother or sister as unethical, immoral, or unbiblical? Or a new believer recovering from alcoholism sees you in that bar and starts to question, is it okay for Christians to drink? 
would you still, would you still claim your right at the spiritual expense of a fellow believer? As a mature believer, you need to be careful not to exercise your freedoms in a way that may damage the spiritual lives of other believers. So what I want to do is I want to share with you three reasons why you should consider voluntarily abstaining from certain freedoms that you know that you know you have when you're around other Christians. The first reason for voluntary abstinence is that it shows a genuine concern for the spiritual welfare of fellow believers. For instance, I've personally decided that, that I will no longer post my political opinions on social media because I'd rather be known as a Christian pastor, I'd rather be known as a uniter, I'd rather be known as a person who loves everybody than a political commentator. A political commentator who just puts things out there that are just dividing people, that is making people angry, that is, you know, like putting, you know, makes people go into a rage. No, I, I, what I want to do is just show people the love of Christ. After this past presidential election, I realized that when I share my views on a political issue, I'm actually creating more division than unity. And that's just me. I'm not saying that you, know, you can stop sharing certain memes or certain you know, pictures or comments on social media. That's, that's you, you can, you know, but me, I'd rather not. Because again, I just wanna, I don't wanna come across that way. Choosing to voluntarily abstain from certain practices in the presence of a weaker believer shows that you're using your knowledge in conjunction with love. Paul wrote in Philippians 2.4, be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. When spiritual knowledge is used in love, the stronger Christian can take the hand of the weaker Christian and help him stand and walk so as to enjoy his freedom in Christ. You can't force feed immature believers to, and, and transform them into spiritual giants. Knowledge must be balanced with love or else you'll end up with big heads instead of enlarged hearts. A second reason for voluntary abstinence, flaunting your freedom damages the spiritual lives of the weak. And I've heard stories of, 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 of Christians relapsing after another Christian used his or her freedom just to listen to a specific genre of music, just by listening to a certain band or a certain type of music every time they got together and hung out whether it was in the car or at, at, at someone or that person's home that brother who was playing the music or that sister never considered that the other person the other believer used to listen to that kind of music 
on long drug binges. And so he associated, he would associate that kind of music with those feelings, those, those times when he went on those binges. And so that was, that was the cause of their relapse, just by listening to music. When you impose your rights and freedoms on weaker Christians with a prideful attitude, what you're actually doing is putting an obstacle in their spiritual growth. That obstacle has the potential to trip a person so that they fall into sin. It's also important to note that the stronger believer defers to the weaker believer in love only that he might help him to mature. He does not pamper him. He seeks to edify him, to help him grow. Otherwise, both will become weak. The third reason for voluntary abstinence, to avoid sinning against Christ. Not only can a weak conscience become defiled, but it can become wounded. That is, a weaker brother can be shocked or saddened by observing my liberty. And so when we, when we wound a weaker believer, we sin against Christ. Why? Because Jesus cares about even his weakest children. Yes, they may be spiritual babies, spoiled brats, scared children, but they're all his nonetheless. And he cares about this, them so much that he died for them. Therefore, before I say, I'll do what I want, go where I want, and eat what I want, I must realize that if I'm flaunting my liberty, boasting and boasting of my maturity, I knowingly cause my weaker brother to stumble. I sin not only against him, but against Christ. If you believe your freedom will lead a fellow Christian into sin, restraint is the best approach. As Christians, you and I are free in Christ, but we ensure, but we must ensure that we balance our Christian freedom with knowledge and love. We must also make sure that we don't tempt the weaker Christian to run ahead of his conscience. You see, where knowledge is balanced by love, the strong Christian will be able to minister to the weak Christian, and the weak Christian will grow. It says in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, For this is God's will your sanctification. Again, this message here is primarily speaking about being careful about using your personal freedoms as a Christian and flaunting them and, and in front of others so that they stumble. We have to be thinking of others when we go out there and do certain things. If it's okay with you or you or you to 
to have a drink during dinner, have a glass of wine, that's fine for you, but it may not be for others. And, and don't try to convince them why. If they think it's wrong, then they think it's wrong. Don't convince them. Don't try to convince them. It's, for them, it's a sin. You know, if I, you know, for me, I, I mean, I, as a recovering alcoholic, it doesn't bother me when others drink around me. But I know for others it does. It brings back those memories and those thoughts. The smells brings them back to those times when they used to drink. And there's two things, I've, and I talk, I've told this to my kids. There's two things that I base, we ought to base our decisions on when it comes to our freedoms. Is it sinful and is it illegal? If it's a sin against God, of course, don't do it. If it's illegal, you don't want to get arrested. You don't want to get in trouble and get caught up. Be mindful of others. Be mindful of what's going on with them. And instead of bringing them down, build them up. Build them up with words of encouragement, with love. Share with them the love of Christ. Maybe some here that some watching that don't know the love of Christ and would like to know Jesus and, and believe that there's something greater for them out there. They know something something is pulling them in that direction. If that's you, I'm telling you the Holy Spirit is calling you to come into the arms of Jesus. And if you've never accepted Jesus Christ into your life as your Lord and Savior, I want to give you an opportunity to do that now before we partake in communion together. But if you've, again, never accepted Jesus into your heart and want to grow in the knowledge and wisdom of the Lord, if you want to have His love within you, wherever you're at. Close your eyes and pray the simple prayer in your heart. Heavenly Father, I believe I'm a sinner. I believe I've fallen short. I now see and believe that Jesus Christ, your Son, died on the cross for my sins. I believe that he gave himself on that cross so that I may be wiped clean of my sins. Now fill me with your spirit, Lord, so that I may grow as a Christian, so that I may grow in the knowledge of who you are. I accept your forgiveness. And I thank you for Jesus. In Jesus' name, I pray this. Amen. If you prayed that, contact us, let us know. You know, if something's going on, you want to talk to us, 
can email us, go to our website, you know, I mean, send a, put a postcard in there, one of the prayer request cards. Let us know and we'll get back to you, we'll talk to you, we'll share with you, you know. We want you to grow as Christians. We want to help build you up. This world's going to try to bring you down, but as your brother and sister, or my, as my brother and sister in Christ, I, I do. I want you to grow in Christ. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you. Thank you for freeing us from death, from sin, from the law that we couldn't keep. It was just impossible to keep. And so now as we're not restrained by these things that we've been set free, help us to have the wisdom to know what is good for us, what is bad for us. Keep us humble, Lord. Pride is, can be so destructive. Again, may we not look out for just our own interest, but to the interest of others. May our love grow just as much as our knowledge. And there may, may there be a balance there, Lord. Thank you again for your word, for teaching us, for speaking to us. And we're able to partake in communion together. Bless this next time. Bless this week, Lord, everybody that's here. Comfort them if they're going through a difficult time, a challenging time. And may everyone here just continue to seek you out so that they may grow, so that they may grow and they may eventually become the people that you created them to be. Bless this next time of fellowship, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.